0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Very excited to be talking about innovation, ecosystems, and startups. We have Tristan Kromer joining us on the show. Hi, Tristan. Hi, Alan. Thanks for coming on. Nice to be here. Really appreciate it. I'm super excited for our conversation. For those that don't know Tristan's background, Tristan is founder and innovation coach at Chromatic, which is lean coaching and innovation ecosystem design. And you can find the links in the bio below to chromatic.com, as well as his blog, LinkedIn, and Twitter profiles. All right, Tristan, let's start things off by asking you one of our favorite questions. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world?
1: Um, General nervousness combined with optimism? Um... Yeah, things are kind of strange right now, Uh, very disruptive from a number of fronts, from business to political to personal, one would almost say, and I have a lot of hope for the future, but uh, there are definitely a lot of things that should be making a lot of people nervous and hopefully rightly so, so that we can take action and do something about them.
0: You're pretty confident that the species will rise to the challenge?
1: Um, I'm confident that we will try and rise to the challenge. Um, I am not necessarily confident that we will succeed. Uh, I think we will survive, but it there there are definitely a lot of tipping points coming forward from everything from global warming to what have you and, and the question is whether where is that tipping point? Have we already passed it uh, just the fact that we have you know farmers in uh, Kansas suddenly recognizing that global warming is taking place means that maybe we've already passed that tipping point, but I certainly hope not. I, I we're sitting here in Silicon Valley, technology moves very fast. Uh, a lot of technology is on some really nice exponential curves like solar panels. So it certainly lends to optimism that we can actually recover from our own mistakes and make something really great out of this uh, crisis and turn it into a good opportunity. Uh, but we'll see. What do you
0: think is the main skill for adults and children to embody in order to make sure that we win that wisdom race?
1: Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, I am going to have to give the perhaps more fluffy answer and say uh, emotional intelligence, knowledge of the self. Mm, hmm. Um, that would probably be my, my number one, like you can have any amount of intellectual capacity, but if you're not kind of aware of your own blind spots, I think it's extremely hard to apply. Yeah. Yeah. Know
0: thyself. Some of the most OG wisdom. Yeah. It's it's in like every religion, right? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Like,
1: First know yourself and then, then help each other. Yeah. Have you ever taken like a first responder course? Maybe. Um, like I, I uh, Back in the day. Yeah, I, I took a emergency first responder course for um, uh, as part of rescue dive training. And one of the first things they teach you is like, don't go run and help somebody. Mm. Like, stop for a moment. Look around. Because if somebody just got hit by a car, the last thing you want to do is run out into the middle of the street And get hit by a different car Mm -hmm. like then you've just doubled the problem you haven't fixed anything so the first thing is make sure you know what's going on make sure you're aware of your surroundings uh, and then go try and help and i think that certainly applies to the basics of like well first of all figure out your own issues um and then go and try and help everyone else
0: yeah yeah i love that yeah that's also this new age of people talking about cleaning their own room or clearing their own channels and anchoring their own divine first and then being able to go out and help the world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm not so far in that direction as to say, you know, just, just meditate every day and that'll fix the planet. I, I don't think that that's going to work. I don't think totally. moments of silence at the Oscars are going to do anything, but, but first we have to be aware of our own issues.
0: And then who were you growing up that got you interested in innovation ecosystems and startups?
1: Uh, I mean, that's probably a question you'd have to ask somebody other than me. Um, I don't know. I've always been very interested in in more creative things in general. I was a musician for 10 years. I, I played a lot of music growing up. I was always involved in uh, what I would consider creative activities, be that from from music or, or playing Dungeons and Dragons was a very big thing. That's kind of a creative form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think kind of wandering into the more Silicon Valley technology and innovation area uh, kind of fit very nicely into, into all of those things. Silicon Valley and um, rock and roll are very similar in many 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 ways from the the kind of idolatry of like the 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 hero or the rock star they're even called rock stars in silicon valley um, to what it takes to work creatively between between engineers and business people and designers and uh, the the drummer and the guitar player and the bass player Um, they're very very similar dynamics uh, in terms of how teams form how teams uh, create and how teams actually uh, get that creation out into the market in some sense, get people listening to that music, get people using that application or that technology. Um, the dynamics are incredibly similar. And, and so coming here felt very much like coming home uh, to some degree.
0: So we then are have these gifts that we can bring forth into the world. And then when we pair ourselves with others it can, the combinatorics of that are it's very, has a lot of potential to be incredible, but we have to understand what forces we're sort of combining together, what our value systems are between founders, between these different musicians that are a part of the band. Because then that's going to impact the music that we produce and the amount of people that care about that music, the way that that music can hopefully help uplift our culture and our world, raise the consciousness of it, solve the problems of it?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I would use the word aware because there's a certain amount of randomness that is inherent in any creative process. You know, just just mm-hmm. stick a whole bunch of people in, in the room and see what happens. Sometimes there's not a whole lot of self-awareness going on there, but there is, as you said, that, that combination uh, effect, right? Mm-hmm like what are the different permutations that these people can create with their different ideas and their different backgrounds. I I think the key that you just brought out is having different backgrounds and not just having like uh, a clone of the same person three times. Like that's very, very important in in music, like having people with creative differences, but not so different that they can't uh, get along and and create something at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But those creative differences are very important in music and they're certainly very important in uh, in business and technology. Yeah.
0: Ooh. Yeah, the creative differences are the way that the dif- the world views can then help augment each other to maximize creativity.
1: Yeah. Um it's it's the ability to realize that um what was i reading today in the news uh some some person decided to combine a, a, i can't remember it's like uh graphene um a single layer of graphene mm-hmm. with clothing mm-hmm. to create mosquito-proof clothing damn uh yeah which is something that i'm sure many of us will be very very happy about mosquitoes are, are not a net benefit in the world um but who decided to do that? What person who was studying metamaterials or, or these amazing new new materials that are coming out uh, and just decided to check to see if mosquitoes could uh, penetrate that with their little mm-hmm. proboscis. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really cool thought. It was probably just some random person who hated mosquitoes or just went on vacation uh, and said like, hey, I wonder if this will work. Maybe you didn't have any background in that material whatsoever, but just uh, passed the idea along And those ideas spontaneously colliding can create something new and interesting. So, um, combining seemingly disparate fields
0: into new innovations—yeah, critical, critical. I wonder, yeah, what that future would be like of wearing a single layer of graphene on clothing, and how that would make us feel, and you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of of things I was
1: reading about was whether or not it was breathable, and so on and so forth.
0: That type of stuff. Okay, what about Chromatic? So, you started this eight years ago, and what have you been doing with Chromatic? Teach us about how you're approaching organizations, startups, corporations, what principles you're helping them with in terms of innovation ecosystems.
1: Okay, so Chromatic, yeah, Chromatic was started eight years ago. Um, Now it's kind of grown into a slightly larger company and a network of partners around the world. And what we essentially do is we work with uh, either directly with innovation teams just to help them uh, get their concepts out the door and tested and into reality as fast as possible. Or we work one level up with the organization uh, or the, the country at the government level to figure out how to support those teams better. Like what are the systematic obstacles that either startups or uh, corporate innovation teams are facing, that every time they try and get out the door, the legal department comes at them and says, whoa, whoa, whoa stop. Like, we don't want you to go outside, that's risky, that's dangerous to us. Um, not to pick on the legal department too much, but um, mm-hmm. it's just one example of, of sort of a systemic obstacle that might stop innovation in a company, or even in a country, and we try and figure out how to remove those obstacles. Uh, does that make sense yeah so then the the give us more of the obstacles because the legal
0: team is one of these obstacles sometimes they're
1: an obstacle sometimes (laughs) they can be absolutely wonderful and a big help um Yeah, yeah there are lots of different obstacles from from procedural obstacles like that that would be the legal team um but there are more uh kind of hard softer and fuzzier obstacles that are a little bit harder to quantify but still possible like fear like Fear is a really uh, important obstacle for innovation. The, the fear of failure, the fear of showing your idea to somebody else and having them shoot you down, tell them that you're not interested or that you think it's stupid. Um, fear of success, uh, which is kind of a strange fear some, for some people to have, but mm-hmm. some people are actually afraid that, uh, that, oh no, if I say this idea out loud, I might actually have more work to do. Now I'm actually gonna have to do it. I didn't wanna do that. I don't want somebody else to do that idea. Um, So there are things like that. Um, Other obstacles can just be uh, the the money side of things, what I would call air support, or or the obstacle would be the dinosaur, right? So that would be an investor, if you're a startup, who says, that's a wonderful idea, I'm going to give you $50,000, and I'm going to take 60% of your company because perhaps my background is in real estate and that sounds like a good idea to me. But if you're in the technology industry, you know that those are terrible, terrible deal terms. In fact, that's going to prevent you from ever being able to raise capital. Uh, Basically, an investor who wants to judge your idea based on a four or five year business plan that is essentially uh, fiction. It's just numbers on a paper that have no evidence, that have no feedback from the market. Um, these are the type of investors that by virtue of of putting their money in the wrong spots can actually stifle innovation because they're only willing to invest in things that are sure bets instead of the risky things that can really produce those exponential transformations that we want from technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are critical key
0: points. So then let's talk about then um, the way that this helps make product teams go fast. So when these obstacles aren't in the way, How does this make people go fast?
1: Well, so the basic idea of, okay, so there's the difference between invention and innovation. So invention is about creating something new. And innovation is more about having a sustainable business model that is going to repeatedly take that invention to the market and and create something that, that can survive and sustain over time. So I can, I can create whatever it is, whether it's an awesome new tea mug that keeps my tea warm, mm-hmm. whatever it is. But if I don't have a way to get that to market, I just have one teacup, right? Mm-hmm. I want something that's really gonna transform the industry or, or, or transform life. Um, we know how to do invention pretty well. Okay? R&D is very well-funded all over the globe. Like, people know how to do that. We know that you can stick a a few very smart people in a garage and you'll get new stuff. But taking that to the market has changed a lot in the past, Uh, certainly since I've moved to Silicon Valley, definitely in the past five years or so because of Lean Startup and uh, the movement uh, really started by Steve Blank and then Eric Ries. And the basic idea there is that whatever you create, whatever you think is wonderful and amazing, the only way to prove that it's a real sustainable innovation is to take it to the market as fast as possible. Mm. To not spend three years trying to perfect your idea Mm. or going back to music to perfect your one song, uh, but to actually just go out, play it on a street corner if you need to. Mm -hmm. uh, Go to a club, play an open mic and test it out and see if people applaud. Mm -hmm. And get that feedback as rapidly as possible so you can iterate, so you can make changes So you can improve on the color, the shape, the user interface, whatever it is, um, and make something that people truly, truly want and are willing to to pay for something that brings value into the world. And if you don't have that feedback loop coming from the actual market, you are stuck in this land of invention rather than getting to the real innovation where where change actually happens.
0: Mm. So it's so critical then to do things like take our, Idea and go immediately as quickly as possible and get feedback from the market And there's got to be some sort of a balance though between me going into like recluse mode to make sure that my Idea is ready for market receptivity But also in market feedback, but also the importance of actually getting that feedback
1: and going and doing that versus just trying to perfect it yeah and and there, there is some degree of balance there, and it depends on what domain that you're in, right? Like, if you are doing something uh, that requires a very large degree of technology, which we're, we, we don't necessarily possess right now, like if you're doing lab-grown beef, uh, that's still a pretty new area. There's a lot of technological hurdles in order to get that to the market. Um, that's something where you would certainly want to, not necessarily be recluse, but you need to go into a lab and figure that out, right? Yeah. But if you are doing something where uh, the technology is not necessarily the issue, it's really whether or not people want that product at all, like whether people want this new pop song or this new sound that you're Mm. creating, well there most of the risk is in the market. It's not on the technology. We know how to play guitar. We know how to play bass. We know how to play drums. We know how to produce songs. That's not an issue. It's a question of whether or not anybody wants the thing. And if that's the type of product you're creating, you better go to the market fast because that's the risky, risky thing. And more and more today, technology is not the issue. We can do amazing things with technology, particularly in web technology. I mean, we can build whatever you want, but uh, whether or not anybody wants the thing, whether or not it's going to deliver value, to really understand that you have to go and try it out with the customer
0: so then yeah so there's it definitely depends on the field then I agree that was a great example on on basically anything that requires uh like the the safety maybe of uh or like you know like the food and drug like administration things sure. like that or like if you're trying to innovate on maybe like some sort of like a a transit vehicle or what have you, just so that it's at least it doesn't kill people. Yes, like,
1: we, we don't want to put anybody on the like beta version of zero point one of the Hyperloop and see them plow at you know, six hundred miles an hour into a wall. Yeah, that would be yeah. very very bad. Like there is substantial technical <laughs> risk there.
0: But I like your examples of like a poem or a pop song or um,
1: uh, maybe a chapter of a book or um, these types of things. Yeah, or food yeah. or a new drink. Like a lot of these things, there's not that much technical risk. There's maybe some uh, and you would balance between uh, you know, the, the R&D aspect of, of making sure that you can technically produce it, but the market aspect is, is much more dominant these days because even if you produce something that's technically perfect maybe nobody still wants it. If you produce something which people, or if you know what people want, eventually you will figure out the technical solution. It's just a question of time, right? But if you can't get the market, it doesn't matter what you can create technically.
0: Yeah, yep. Interesting. So again, there's another massive balance between doing your technical due diligence and making a product or service just exceptional and also being able to capture the market. So this is kind of also the importance of having exceptional salespeople that know how to build relationships and close deals, but also having excellent engineers and designers. Yeah. What about the greatest obstacles for startups and then the greatest obstacles for corporations? What are those?
1: (laughs) So they're, they're pretty similar. Uh, we just typically tend to use different words for them okay right, so for uh, uh, right so so every startup uh, exists in a certain environment right so here in silicon valley it 's very, very easy for me to go out the door uh, I can go to a meetup I can go to hackers and founders here in uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, and I can meet a whole bunch of people. I can meet a technical person that I need for my team. I can meet a designer, and I can create a team very, very easily. Um, if we were sitting in, uh, let's say Tokyo, that might be slightly more challenging. Okay, maybe the the environment, that ecosystem, uh, doesn't exist in in quite as um, abundant. So it's not qu- yeah, it's it's not as abundant. And it's not as supportive as an environment. Mm-hmm. If I fail as an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. That's actually a good thing. Like that That's a bullet point for my resume, that, that I have a good failure, that I tried to do something entrepreneurial. Uh, I went out, it didn't work, but now I've had that experience and I'm better for it. Whereas if you are a failed entrepreneur in uh, Buenos Aires, uh, they might look at that like you are a failure as a person. Right? That you're not worth hiring in our, our company because you failed. Mm-hmm. So, that sort, of, um, that sort of potential fear or impact uh, from failure, like that's, that's an obstacle in that environment that I would classify under fear. Mm-hmm. Right? And that exists for startups, okay. uh, but that also exists inside corporations. There's, uh, everybody who works in a large corporation knows somebody who's been in an innovation project that didn't work mm-hmm. and got fired because of that. Mm. Right? And that causes failure. Um, that causes fear. That that causes a, a level of fear where you might not even want to attempt an innovation project. Whereas uh, someplace like Amazon, uh, that's a very different corporate environment. Like they encourage you to fail. They would in fact be disappointed. Uh, there's a, there's a giant list of, of failures from the what was it the Fire Phone or I can't even remember. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Giant list of failures for Amazon that you can you can go and Google and. Uh, I don't work at Amazon, but as far as observation can can get me, it seems to be fine. Like it seems to be a good environment where you can try out new ideas and if it doesn't work, that's okay as long as you learn from them.
0: Yeah, and there seems to also be this like, critical process when you have that new idea or innovation that if you follow a process that is robust that is lean that has design thinking principles embedded in it that's really your true calling and your true purpose in the world then maybe you have a higher propensity of success with that idea
1: maybe uh i mean what i would say is that i I have not seen any data that says the, the kind of lean as opposed to the more waterfall or build it and they will come approach has any particular higher chance of success. Okay. But uh, lean gives you more chances, more kind of swings it back. Mm, so yeah, interesting. Right, so if my approach is just the, the Kevin Costner field of dreams approach, like I'll, I'll build this crazy thing and then the customers will just show up and I take a year to build my product and at the end of that year I'm I'm out of money, Uh, that means I have one chance to succeed. So, maybe I have a 1 in 100 chance, so I've got my 1% chance, it's not very great, but maybe I succeed, maybe I don't. But With a lean approach, you would take that one year and you would test something out on day one. You would put up a landing page with your concept, you would explain it to people, you would go out and talk to human beings. And uh, you would see if they respond, if they react, if they're interested, if they want to Gosh. sign up for your mailing list. That's right. just so important. It's just everyone talks about ideas,
0: and it's just such a simple thing to s- just set up your landing page. Just set up and your landing go page. Go and, and talk to people about your idea and try and funnel a couple people into the first product or service or session and just go and do and create and meaning will come from that process.
1: Right, so if you do that, 365 days of that year, maybe each chance is only 1%, but if you keep on changing your idea based on feedback, uh, you've got at least 365 chances to get something started. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I think the real power of lean and design thinking come into play, that It basically just allows you to get feedback and have more opportunities to get it right.
0: 365 permutations versus one permutation. And also that kind of speaks to our show in a sense because uh, we don't do one show per year, we do 365 shows per year. And it makes it so that um, we get a lot of feedback and a lot of practice. And a lot of diverse content for people to pick up and try and work with and get inspired or engaged by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it was just tough because of that whole signal to noise ratio thing, too. Because if you are just trying to run 365 different experiments uh, for business ideas, that maybe like 340 of them will just be like just noise out in the universe afterward. But you know, only 25 of them will actually have signal and people will be interested in them. So this is a very tough thing too to balance in is understanding how much noise we create sometimes. Like some of our interviews um, have content in them that is just, it's me just being a bad interlocutor you know uh or it's just you know in in this sense then i don't do the best job possible at unleashing the guest's fullest potential out from them and so in a sense it's like well that content could be made better yeah and so um you wonder about signal to noise ratios you wonder about these types of things that come from that
1: i I mean i think that's true that's it's really two different things that you're talking about there, right? Like the, the first thing you mentioned was, well, what if you run 365 experiments and 25 are good? How do you separate those or how do you even choose between the first 25? Which is more of a question of, hey, look, don't run 365 experiments at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you get signal on one, double down. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully you're not going to run 350. Yeah, and you run like something. You run do.
0: maybe 30, and then you double down on the 31st because it gave signal.
1: Exactly. You got something double down on that. OK, you're making small pivots. you're not doing completely different ideas. But the second thing you mentioned is just kind of running clean experiments. Like what you're talking about in terms of doing 365 interviews a year with different people with different environments, different variables, Maybe the sound is not good, Maybe there's bad weather today and I show up and I'm in a bad mood or something mm-hmm. crazy like that, mm-hmm. you can't control for all those variables. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a problem in startups and technology, but uh, at least for a lot of the, the projects which I'm involved with, you can control a lot of the variables. It's something like a, a website or a technology or a new food product, where you can control a lot of the variables. You can, uh, even if we were doing a, a new type of cake, I like cake, it was my birthday a couple of days ago. Oh, happy I've had birthday! A lot of cakes. Couple days ago, yeah, Thank yeah, you very much. Nice. Uh, but if I was creating a new type of cake, you know, I can control the environment. I can put it in my test kitchen. I'm going to create the same batch mm-hmm. of cake each time. I'm going to use the same ingredients, uh, and I'm going to make one raspberry flavor and one strawberry flavor. And I can I can A B test those by changing mm-hmm. just one variable and controlling everything else. Mm-hmm. Whereas what you're talking about with the podcast, as I said, it's very difficult because you have at the very least two yeah, very human very mm-hmm. variable variables right
0: yes yes okay that was great i like that i like the analogy of the baking a cake yeah because these are def this is not raspberries and strawberries this is you know complex human and complex human yes uh yeah this is yeah.
1: this is comparing uh you know i want to say uh Sushi to uh, souvlaki or something. Something like that. I don't know how to compare those two tastes at all. That doesn't make any sense. What? Or sushi to a baseball game. Right? That would be yeah, the
0: comparison, yeah. right? But. What is the difference between agile versus
1: lean startup versus design thinking? Um, the difference is more in perspective, like they're all facets of the same thing. Um, all of them relate to this basic premise of we don't know something. So let's try something, see if it works. And if it doesn't work, let's try something else. It's the basic principle behind all of them. Right. Yeah. But, um, agile comes from a very, uh, it was created by technologists, from, by engineers, uh, who wrote the agile manifesto. Mm-hmm. And so kind of where they start that iterative loop is slightly different from where um, a a business person might start that loop, like more like lean startup, right? Like Eric Reese is an engineer, so the way he he coins that iterative loop is build, measure, learn. Mm -hmm. And he starts it with build. Mm -hmm. Eric is an engineer, so that's his first inclination is let me try building something, Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna measure it, see if it works, and then I'll hopefully learn something from that experience and know what to build next. Yes. Whereas a business person might start with uh, defining a KPI and say, well, Wait a minute. Let me let me do something similar, but let me go backwards here. What am I actually? What am I trying to impact? Like, what is the metric that I'm trying to change? And now, based on that metric, well, well, how would I how would I learn that? Like, what sort of experiment can I do mm-hmm. um, that's going to change that? What what information do I need? And and now let me perhaps decide what to build. And, and then see if it impacts that metric. So they're really saying more like a measure, learn, build, measure, learn, build, measure, mm-hmm. learn, build. Designers have this similar loop called think, make, check. And they, they're designers, so they start with think. Mm-hmm. They don't start with make, they start with think. So it's really just a question of perspective. Designers like to start with uh, kind of that creative aspect. Uh, engineers tend to typically start with building something, business people typically start with measuring something first. But they're all essentially saying the same thing, which is let's recognize that we do not know exactly what the customer wants. We don't know exactly how to solve this particular problem. Let's try something out, see if it works, doesn't work, do something else. Yeah. In a sense, it also reminds
0: me very much so of publishing content on the channel and seeing what sticks, what inspires people, what gets them engaged versus what does not, and having that closed-loop feedback of comments and conversations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same
1: loop we have as children, right? Like, it's it's something I think we've forgotten as we we get older, like we we try and stand up, uh, we push up, we immediately fall over, and we figure out a different way to do it. We Mm -hmm. try it with both hands, we try it with one hand, we try it holding on to uh, perhaps a larger person's mm-hmm. uh, pant leg as we go. Uh, but we we iterate and we experiment. Um, and sometimes we've uh, kind of forgotten that. I think, again, partly at a fear of rejection, mm-hmm. fear of the trauma of failure. Um, but nowadays you almost can't start a business without uh, without getting something into the market and seeing if it works. Uh, nobody's willing to fund the next segue anymore.
0: Mm. So, when you're uh, going into the different startups and uh, corporations, and how do you identify their innovation ecosystems? how do you uh, find the right people to talk to? how do you teach them about these hands-on experiences that they can do in order to become more effective?
1: Uh, well, there's, there's two real approaches. I mean there's one that, that I personally favor that's just to you know roll up our sleeves and start working. Um, if I'm able to uh, immediately get engaged with the team, uh, start working with them, I'm gonna see very, very quickly what what wall they run into, whether that's, again, like fear we were talking about or, or a silo in the organization that prevents us from accessing perhaps the Salesforce or the customers. Um, I'll find that out very quickly by simply embedding myself in that team and working with them. Uh, at least on a weekly, if not more often basis. Um, so that's a very, very quick way to understand at least at a, a small level, what are the typical obstacles that the teams are facing. If I can do that with two or three teams, I'll have a very good sense very quickly of what the environment is and which obstacles are the biggest issue today. Um, the other method is of course, just to go out and talk to people. <laughs> Most people know what the issues in their company are and they'll tell you very, very quickly, oh, it's, it's my boss doesn't know how to fund innovation uh, the sales team won't talk to us, we don't have any engineers in our company, uh, the bureaucracy is too heavy, the regulation is too heavy, mm. people are afraid of uh, poisoning people, as you said, or having some catastrophic technical failure. Mm. They'll tell you pretty quickly. Wow. Um,
0: yeah. Just tell you straight up what the obstacles are. And
1: If you can have honest conversations with people, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is pretty easy if you're doing it kind of not with the CEO looking over your shoulder, Uh, they will tell you relatively quickly. Um, The only kind of caveat I'd put there is that uh, there is a certain amount of finger pointing that goes on uh, and that typically isn't the biggest issue. Mm. Uh, There's something even deeper than that. Well, it's not necessarily deeper, it's just perhaps of greater impact. Like, uh, for one large consumer goods corporation, we did uh, two workshops at some point um, on lean startup and and design thinking, and one was a workshop entirely of uh, the project managers and product managers, and one was of the executive team. And we did the same exercise in both rooms, and we, we simply asked everybody, you know, write down on a series of sticky notes what is the biggest obstacle to innovation in your company? Mm-hmm. And in the product management group, they all basically said the same thing, or it was one of the biggest biggest clusters that everybody wrote down was fear. The management is afraid to invest in innovation and they don't support it. Mm. Like They're afraid they'll get blamed. And uh, in the other room, which was happening a few hundred yards away, they did the same exercise. And the management said that the product managers were afraid of failure.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Um, that they were the ones that were unwilling to to risk anything, they were too risk averse. And so, uh, that's not to say that either of them are wrong, but that was a really easy issue to solve, at least for that group, because we just put them in the same room and had them present their results to each other and they realized that, oh, we thought you were the ones that were afraid, oh no. And so just, mm-hmm. just recognizing that and bringing that to the surface, to some degree... Uh, Helps helped uh, immediately. Didn't solve it across the organization, but it was immediately a little bit better.
0: What do they do then when they both know that information about each other? How do you then move forward from there?
1: Well, well, hopefully from there you can immediately just start funding the teams. That's that's the main thing. that sort of cultural norm of of being risk averse of being uh, afraid is is definitely a long-haul change you really have have to have i think a lot of committed people particularly on the executive side who are willing to um be transparent about failure that's one of the biggest things you can do uh, is just be transparent when something succeeds and fails and not punish the people involved actually congratulate them for mm. successfully invalidating a product idea uh, but it, it, generally it's, it's best to start at the top and have you know, even the CEO, if you can get them, come out and say, hey look, the last mistake I made was a billion dollar mistake. So guess what, man? If you screw up on this product and lose $10,000, I don't care, mm-hmm. it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. You're not gonna lose your job, you won't be punished. I'd rather you take the risk and fail than not take the risk, like the risk of not innovating is mm. far greater than the risk of failure.
0: I love that one. The risk of not innovating is greater than the risk of failure. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's a good one. So, I love so yeah, that that's one. one of the first things that we try and do.
0: What's the um, the governments that are getting involved in innovation now?
1: I mean, almost what government isn't getting involved mm. in innovation? Um, I mean, this this happens, I think, cyclically to some degree. There's always, uh, especially when economies start slowing down, people start thinking about how do they encourage innovation. Um, some forward-thinking governments uh, are do try and get ahead of the curve and think about how can we encourage more entrepreneurship in our in our uh, in our ecosystem. Um, you look at the government of Estonia. I think is extremely forward-thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Estonia, I'm not trying to say anything bad about Estonia, but Estonia is not a land of great natural resources that they can exploit. It's, it's largely swamp. Uh, it's a very small country, it's, it's not a huge powerhouse, it doesn't have millions and, or billions of people like in China, uh, so they have to be really effective in terms of attracting entrepreneurial talent, uh, making sure that companies stay in Estonia. And they've done a really good job in terms of uh, creating uh, electronic citizenship, making it very easy to start a company there, uh, getting even fast fast internet, encouraging accelerators, funding startups. Um, These are all activities that they've undertaken to try and spur the next level of innovation. And you see even countries uh, like the United Arab Emirates. Uh, It's obviously a very oil-based economy. They know that they are at high risk of disruption. right? Government of Norway as well, which we, we work with. Oil-based economy, they know that eventually oil is finished. Right? I don't know exactly when that's gonna happen, but it will happen eventually. So they need to diversify and create different industries. And the way to do that is to encourage innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, United Arab, Arab Emirates, a lot of those oil-based countries are, are trying to diversify their economy into a knowledge economy where technology can take the place of oil. Um, and be their next source of growth. Uh, Norway's done a fantastic job at encouraging these uh, clusters of excellence um, in uh, oncology, uh, maritime technology. Um, yeah, they're, they're very, very supportive and they put a lot of active effort into innovation. Norway, including these innovation outposts in Singapore and here in Silicon Valley and in New York. so. Um, almost every government has something along these lines and it's typically closely related to the economic development department
0: this also speaks highly to the need for diversification of one's portfolio in a country yeah Um, this speaks highly to the need to innovate quickly as an entire country with the limited amount of of maybe resources or people or whatever you have at that time is how do you fund unleashing the gifts and the creativity of the people of that country and especially moving into the digital technology age there's also a part of that is like how do you handle things both spiritually and geopolitically when there's so much progress happening in neurotechnology or biotechnology or all the AI and robotics. But also there's this, uh, there's this lack of our own spiritual actualization, like we're still in kindergarten ourselves, we don't know how to collaborate across borders, we still have multi-billion dollar military budgets happening. So like how do, how do you see the geopolitical climate mixing together with the innovation economy?
1: Uh, that's a very interesting one. I mean, it's. It feels like you're you're, kind of talking about the system that's in play, right? Because. All the things you're talking about are not necessarily uh, contradictory or or opposed to one another, right? Like. Uh, I don't know what the ideal like military budget should be, right? But uh, the military, the space space exploration has propelled technology forward radically. Like you can look at the number of patents and materials that came out of the space program, and it's it's kind of mind boggling the degree to which they they pushed out and eventually became commercialized and generated a lot of value uh, out in the world. Um, but there is sometimes this kind of negative feedback loop where industries become so entrenched that they become protective and they start trying to prevent innovation in any particular area, mm-hmm. right? Like that the system starts feeding upon itself. Um, and There you're talking about, I forget what it's called, the technical term for it, the military industrial complex, mm-hmm. right? Where if you are kind of creating barriers to entry where your plane that you're inventing, you've successfully distributed the parts to that plane in every single state so that senators can't vote against you ever defunding that program. And that money is then as a consequence being taken away from basic science from R&D technology that might that might create the the next space station, the next, uh, the next basic science that might propel um, internet technology or quantum computing or whatever you want to have out, out of it. Um, if that If that entrenched industry is taking money away from areas that are truly exploding in growth, that's gonna be a big problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm I'm, honestly, I'm not familiar with how uh, the budgets are are allocated in the US or other countries, but certainly you can see that uh, we lost a huge amount of pace in the United States compared to China in uh, supercomputing and quantum technology Mm -hmm. in the past years. I think we're still leading but not by as much as we should be if we'd been investing our money wisely.
0: And what about the um, idea of measuring success when you're so small? This is innovation accounting. Oh,
1: um, from a country perspective or a team perspective? Both. Ooh. Well, even the smallest country is not that small, so it's relatively, mm-hmm. uh, you have enough of a sample size um so maybe let me answer that in a very weird weird fashion um the the issue with the issue with measuring things uh when you're kind of very early on i I think a lot of the times comes down to our bias as human beings to perceive linear equations when a lot of things are exponential um it's very hard for us to understand what an exponential curve means. Um, and I, I don't know how apocryphal this is, but Ray, uh, there's a story about Ray Kurzweil that uh, you know the Human Genome Project. Mm-hmm. right? So the Human Genome Project was a 10-year project to map the human genome. Um, ha- five years into that project, they were one percent finished. Mm-hmm. So there was big uproar. Everybody's like, "This is a huge waste of money. They're never going to be finished. Uh, This looks like a total disaster, they're only 1% finished and they are halfway into the project, five years into the 10-year project. And uh, allegedly Ray Kurzweil looked at this and said, whoa, sounds like they're right on track Mm -hmm. because he knew that the technology was, the the efficacy of the technology was doubling every year. So 1% was going to become 2%, 2% was going to become 4%, 4% becomes 8%, 8%, 16% and all of a sudden you go from 1% to 100% in five years mm-hmm. and they were done on time. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for us to see that. You know, We see 1% done after five years and we say, well, after oh, 10 really? years, it's gonna be 2% done. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're very, very early on, you have to understand how to measure things and what to measure and also just understand the basic trend line, whether or not it is a linear function or an exponential function, mm-hmm. because something like lab-grown meat seems like a really long way off, unless it's on an exponential curve, in which case we'll see it very, very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, even the 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 plant plant beef, the mm-hmm. things that are coming out with the Impossible Burger, mm-hmm. that that went very, very quickly from something that was kind of a mediocre substitute to something which a lot of people just rave about now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, And that's one of those technologies that we were talking about at the beginning makes me a little bit uh, more optimistic in terms of the future because moving from a beef economy to a plant-based economy uh, is definitely better for the environment uh, Mm. on on almost any measure possible. So if you can get plant-based or even lab-grown beef that is going to sate the consumer desire, um, that's gonna be hugely better for for our planet. And those technologies are proceeding in an incredible incredibly fast rate. Um, so just understanding like the difference between those two equations uh, immediately helps you start evaluating your technology and understanding what you need to strive towards and what you need to measure.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, I like that. I like linear versus exponential uh, understanding for, um, for that idea of innovation accounting. It's also just really hard to measure in general when you are like a young, like media company or when you're a young, um, just brick and mortar business, how to measure your success along the way. Super hard, but a lot of it's almost like are you waking up every morning and feeling really passionate about what you do? Um, are you able to sustain your innovation through not only your own energy, but also being able to
1: you know, financially support yourself these types of questions? I mean, that, that example that you just gave right there is I think a really nice example of those two, two concepts, right, and, and how you might measure them differently. Like if you're a brick and mortar business, like that, that's a linear system, right? Because there's only so many people that are gonna walk past your store and they're not gonna be doubling every other week. Mm-hmm. Like, you're on a Versus equation, the distribution right? of media content or software or whatever it may be. Exactly, yeah. right? Like, that's something where it's much easier to, to get exponential growth by, by going viral. Um, which is not to say that having a brick and mortar store is bad, not at all, but you're gonna measure those two things very, very differently. Mm-hmm. You gotta be aware of linearity versus exponentiality, yeah. Yeah. Because if if you're starting a media a media company or whatever a website and you have ten customers and uh, One of them is very very happy right? um, You might think like oh, I only have one customer. I might as well call it a day. This sucks right? but if you say, well, wait a minute, actually my conversion rate there is 10%, one out of 10. Mm-hmm. So if I just increase my distribution, I'm gonna have, and I can get 100 people coming store. I'll have 10 sales. So my conversion rate is not too bad, actually, it, it's okay. I'm ignoring all the statistics and margin of error of that, but at least if I look at the conversion rate as opposed to the raw numbers, I'm probably okay. I can afford to lose money today, because if I just increase my distribution, I'm eventually going to be able to pay for this website and, and this technology. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you're a brick and mortar store, only 10 people walk past your store today, there's only going to be 10 people walking past your store tomorrow. So, I need to focus on, I need to have a much higher conversion rate there to survive. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is a pretty simplified example, yeah. but like, the the focus on on what you're going to focus on is very very different. In one case, you're going to focus on just wow, I can just focus on distribution. Another case, you really have to nail every customer that's going through the door. Yep, yep, <clears throat> and
0: do things like prioritize uh, word of mouth as well for people that have a good time at your brick and mortar, and then ask them for referrals and. Try and get more people through online funnels to know about who you are. This type of stuff.
1: Perhaps. Then you're yeah. leveraging some of that more exponential distribution, right? Yeah. By asking for Yelp reviews and uh, your op- whatever your Open Table score and so on and so forth. That's one definitely one way to do it.
0: What are some of the buzzwords that you hear versus the
1: reality? Uh, just in startups in general. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, so much as a, as a buzzword, Lean Startup's a buzzword, Design Thinking's a buzzword, Agile's a buzzword. Um, I mean, there's a whole crop of buzzwords, which is just the technology, which people think if I insert the word artificial intelligence plus blockchain into my pitch as a startup, I'm going to get more funding, uh, which is sadly true in some cases. And, and that's just irritating because people are using blockchain for things that doesn't really even apply. It doesn't make any difference. Um, but what, what I guess, uh, I guess where buzzwords come into play more with what I do is when people, uh, are kind of doing the more cargo cult thing. They're saying, well, I, I do agile. We do our daily standups every day and we have a retrospective meeting where we all give two thumbs up at the end of the week and, uh, and that's agile, you know, we, we follow the scrum methodology. Uh, but they're not actually doing, ag- they're not actually agile. They're doing the, the, the rituals, but they're not absorbing any of the benefit because mm. they don't understand why they're doing them. Right? Mm-hmm. They're doing their stand ups like a status report. Like, this is what I'm doing today, as opposed to saying, this is what I'm doing and this is how it might affect you. And here's where I'm stuck and I need help. Those are the things that, those are the conversations that should be happening in a daily stand up very quickly. Yeah. Right. But if it just becomes a status report where you're you're rattling off numbers and nobody's really paying attention to each other and people are just doing the ritual, um then I think that it's it's very counterproductive and then you've really just absorbed the buzzwords without absorbing any of the impact, yeah, so that's that's my pet peeve and then
0: in terms of um the emotional aspect to these journeys for you kind of hinted at this a little bit where people feel like. They are maybe pointing fingers at each other across companies and saying that it's their fear, it's their fear of inability to innovate. But there's also just this, it's like this hero or heroine's journey that people go through in order to really suffer and then to just be like, I need to innovate. Like, I need to change my behavior. I need to make this idea happen. I need to take a burden on my back. I need to go forth and bring something of value into the world. So, tell us about how you've been dealing with that understanding the emotional journeys that people go through and helping them go through the processes of
1: healing and bringing forth their ideas yeah um I mean the emotional challenge I think of entrepreneurship is is this ability to simultaneously be uh extremely passionate and extremely optimistic about the change that you want to make the the value that you want to bring into the world um but not being overconfident or zealous so right? this is the, the delicate
0: balance between humility and confidence
1: yeah and and i guess in a in a true hero's journey there's always that moment of doubt right but i i think the difference between reality and perhaps the the movie version is that if you're going to go out and test your idea every day, you're going to get hammered down a lot. Right? And if you become kind of overly confident that your idea is the best one, you stop testing. Because why would you test if you if you believe your mm-hmm. idea is perfect? Then there's no reason to go out and test it with the market. Yeah. Right? Um, but. You can't just be doubtful at the same time. You can't just sit there and be like, well, I don't know about anything, so let me, let me test everything. Let me A-B mm-hmm. test the color of this couch and <laughs> let me make sure that I have the right amount of salt in my eggs in the morning. <laughs> you can't A-B test everything, right? Because A, you will be paralyzed, uh, and B, startups are incredibly hard. Uh, it is vicious to go out and, and get rejected every day and make it a deliberate practice of rejection. Um, And if you don't have a certain level of confidence and faith that what that you will eventually get there, then you are not going to have the mental and emotional fortitude to get through those hard times. Because I don't know. I know I I know some people who perhaps won't admit it. But I personally do not know of any startup founder who has not at some point just been broken down in tears because they thought that they'd absolutely wasted their time in their life, that all of their employees were gonna be fired. Um, like everybody, if, if your startup survives long enough, you will have that moment. <laughs> you will have that moment where you're under the table just going like, what have I done? Um, so if, if you don't have the resilience uh, and the emotional well-being to get through that and, and and the support system I think which which everybody needs to, to get through that and have some people who can uh, hopefully a co-founder who can hold you up when you're feeling down and you can hold them up when they're feeling down, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to get through things and, and that still holds true if you if you're working in a corporation, or even if you're working as a you know a cog in the government wheel, you're still going to have the same thing. If you want to truly make a change, you're going to have to put up with a lot of uh, terrible, terrible times, and you better be able to stick it through. Otherwise, you you won't you won't break through.
0: I'm curious about what your relationship has been like with a higher power, a source, God, all that is, creation. What has been your relationship with that higher power and what relationship do you see other entrepreneurs and innovators have with a higher
1: power that enables them to be more effective? First one, I could probably answer more easily than the second one. Uh, cause actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I know we mentioned this before the camera started rolling, but I don't actually talk about kind of religion or spirituality with a lot of founders. I know that a lot of founders, particularly here in Silicon Valley, have, have something along those lines, but no, nobody really talks about it. There's very much this sort of Western philosophy of like, it is my my will to power, right? I would love to see
0: places like Silicon Valley, Shenzhen, Tel Aviv—all these like in, like central um, startup uh, drivers of the world—to just focus on spirituality and philosophy as they focus on AI and biotech <laughs> yeah. and all these things, because that's really how I think we will have a higher propensity for um, winning the wisdom race, is by combining those. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because there is a. Uh This this may be a very Spilcom Valley-specific thing, but there is this kind of demarcation where everybody goes to yoga class and has their spirituality (laughs) moment and goes off on their zen retreat. But then we're at the office right now, right? We're working. Um, There's not as much combination of those things as as one would think given this environment. Uh, And that
0: could actually help maximize efficacy in that environment if we did that better.
1: Maybe. I mean, there are a lot of... I mean, there are certainly almost technology enabled spirituality now, right, so there's the what the com app yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or whatever you have, which is like yeah yeah again, sometimes veers into maybe that ritual over over the meaning, um, maybe people are using the com app, but they're just thinking about their p and l statement sure, while meditating, sure. yeah. uh, maybe too much monkey mind, but yeah, um, but yeah, there's not as much open discussion about those topics as, as one would like so let's do your relationship yeah. first with the higher power and then we'll do others i i mean personally um most people would call me either Taoist or a type f monist uh mm. it's mostly the same ish thing familiar with Taoist? what's a type f monist? it's like a very specific monist essay classifying as uh, monist is like yes. um so, my philosophy is that there is only one thing in the universe. There is not like spirit and matter. It's not only matter or it's not only spirit. It's just there's one thing. It doesn't matter if you want to call it spirit or a or physical substance. It doesn't matter. It's all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, What's the class F side of it? Uh, it's just, I think he had ABCD. I don't know. It was a long time ago. I read that essay. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. It was just a classification system. I haven't heard of the Monus
0: classification system before, so I asked. Okay.
1: It's it's okay. basically uh, it's basically the idea that there is no fundamental difference between uh, me sitting here uh, and this couch, the grasshopper out there. Uh, All off. is one. All is essentially one. Everything is interrelated. Uh, I'm not saying that you're... A uh, couch has a uh, consciousness, consciousness has, and is sure. debating philosophy, philosophy within itself, yeah. but it is a less organized less organized unit of that. Like, it has a, a different level of consciousness, so to, so to speak. Um, so essentially, I'm more of a Taoist. Like, I, I don't think that there's any sort of higher power that is sitting around giving instructions. Um, I don't think that there is any... Uh, uh, I don't think that there's a big, uh, big book which we all have to tally our ledger in and, and get into heaven or, or get into hell at the end of the day. Um, but I am very much under the uh, belief that we everything is hyperconnected. Um, I can't control what you do or what uh, is happening on Alpha Centauri with my thoughts or anything like that. Uh, but I acknowledge that everything is very hyperlinked, and we have to be aware of that. And there's there's a very flimsy. the the definition of self is very flimsy Mm -hmm. and like where i stop and this couch starts and and you start it's it's all uh, very malleable. i have millions of organisms living inside me right now as bacteria uh, that impact me on a a regular basis and Mm -hmm. uh, that effect on my my free will and my ability to to act is (laughs) is very profound yeah um, so the self is, is a very arbitrary construct.
0: Do, where do you see the the this gift of of us breaking away from that oneness to adventure in these bodies? Do you feel like that's just a an experience in Earth school that we're going through? I'm not one hundred percent sure I know what you mean by earth school. Like that you came here with a specific mission or goal to learn specific things and
1: that you are taking that back to the central source after you pass. Personally not so much. I mean look like I basically look at the universe as in, as uh the universe is constantly just trying to understand itself right it's Mm -hmm. creating itself and it's trying to understand itself at the same time and we're just one expression out of many of that Uh, i don't think we're going to kind of deliver our earthly hard drives back into the to the mothership and get an answer sometime but uh, this is just an expression of creation Uh, Mm -hmm. um, and i'm very pragmatic i don't worry about it too much do you feel like we're all
0: paint strokes or notes being played in the grand symphony of Creation.
1: <laughs> there's a, um, uh, I wish I could remember, there's a wonderful poem about, quanta, uh, about string theory that uh, kind of reminds me of what you just said. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in, in a way, we are all just uh, expressions of a thing, right? So if, if everything is all interconnected, there's essentially just one thing, right? Like that's that monism part. Um, And we're all just expressions of that thing kind of looking back at ourselves trying to understand what the hell is going on Uh, it's a a part of the whole trying to understand the whole which is a Fundamental contradiction that that we will never get over Um, It's fun. It's awesome. It's intriguing uh, but at the end of the day uh, here I am in my body trying to figure out what to do with my life and what value I can add and how I can make uh, everybody else a little bit happier at the end of the day. And that's what I try to focus on.
0: And then where do you think that this role of free will versus predetermination
1: exists? Uh, we have to believe in free will. We have no choice in the matter. Why? Um, it's pretty much hardwired into us. Um, explain that more I it's literally just like uh, you can there's a wonderful story that that probably everybody uh, who listens to you would enjoy if they like this topic called by Ted Chang I think about the um, kind of a predictor machine it's like mm-hmm. a, a machine that uses quantum fluctuation it's a sci-fi story it's a little machine that basically um, can predict when you're gonna push the button and will blink a light immediately before you push the button. Yes. Right. Uh, And the concept behind this this machine is that you can never trick it, right? It's perfect, right? So Mm -hmm. every time you see the light, you push the button, Mm -hmm. even though pushing the button is the thing that causes the light Mm. retroactively. And so this machine, in theory, proves that you have no free will because every time you see the light, you're forced to push the button, essentially. Uh, and in the story it kind of drives some people insane <laughs> they become apathetic and they just sit around and start drooling um, and honestly I don't think that's the way it works um, so with, within that story there's
0: both that we now have uh, neural reading technology that can sense yeah. when the thought originates and then lights up the, the button before we even press it but then there's also this component
1: of Where does the thought even originate from in the first place? Yeah, there's a whole kind of of the the theory of the epiphenomenal mind, right? Which, uh, so I think the experiment you're referring to is that, uh, you know, somebody throws a ball or something and I move to catch it, but the brain region responsible for moving the arm activates after I catch it, right? But I feel as if I was the one who moved the hand. Right. And so the, the, the theory there is that that consciousness thing is actually irrelevant. Okay. Um, it's interesting. It's kind of unprovable to some degree. Um, and honestly, to some degree, I think it's irrelevant, right? Like they're fun things to ponder like I can ponder the consciousness of an octopus where it's its intelligence actually seems to be distributed through its entire body mm-hmm. like the the limbs behave quite independently in some regards but they're they're coordinated uh somehow uh it's fascinating but at the end of the day isn't it more interesting and more important to focus on like what I what can I create what can I What can I do in this world today that's gonna make things a little bit better? Uh, How can I know myself a little bit more? Mm. Does it matter if my Mm. consciousness is epiphenomenal or not? Mm. If I have free will, great. If I don't have free will, well, then I don't have free will about whether or not I think I have free will, so what difference does Mm. it actually make in my day-to-day action? Have you ever known anybody who was 100% convinced that they didn't have free will, that all of a sudden just seized up and stopped functioning?
0: So the, uh, that it wouldn't, yeah, that would not be healthy for the human behavior. But at the same time, there's a, um, a truly uh, profound understanding of that oneness. That is, uh, um, if what role free will plays in that oneness is just
1: really interesting. It's interesting, but some of those questions like wind up in, Do you know this guy, uh, I think his name was Berkeley, or he was a philosopher that thought Mm. like the whole world was an illusion, right? That Mm. there was only the mind. And Leibniz is like this to some degree as well. Like uh, he thought that there was just you and you were kind of separated from everything else and you were just kind of watching the universe unfold on a kind of um, projector-like screen that you were just receiving sensory impulses essentially. But at the end of the day, if you are in this solipistic Mind, uh, and you think that everything is just senses. If I throw a rock at your head, you're still going to try and duck. So, mm. what does it matter at the end of the day? Like, isn't it better to focus on the other people, even if they're, even if you think they're an illusion? Like, isn't it better to focus? Like, aren't you happier as your own person by uh, not turning inwards and turning into this kind of solipsistic creature? Like, isn't it better to engage with other people Mm -hmm. um, and try and do something?
0: How about we ask you this, these bifurcating moments that are on our life trajectory is really relevant to our endeavoring into startups or innovation. How do you decide, both personally and seeing entrepreneurs doing it, how do you decide on those moments where it's like, should I pass four hours going on a nature hike or four hours on work or should I pass four hours investing into my child's life outcome or should I invest four hours into making money so they can go to a better school? How do you figure out how to act in those bifurcating
1: moments? I mean, I would, I would ask what's going to give me the biggest payoff in the long run. I'm, I guess I'm more utilitarian in that aspect, right? So <clears throat> if I'm trying to solve a problem and I have an option of cranking on that problem for four hours or taking a walk for four hours, like you have to ask yourself, would the walk help you? Sometimes getting away from the problem is the best way to solve it. Uh, If you're trying to decide between working on your startup and having a successful home life, that's probably a more profound question. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back to do you have the emotional fortitude to actually succeed with this startup in the long haul, are you going to have that emotional fortitude if you're going through divorce at the same time? Mm -hmm. What do you really care about? Like, What are you building for? That's actually something that I think is is really interesting. I I don't know if it was quite on your your agenda, but... um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, some entrepreneurs have a goal of making a specific change or helping a specific person. And some entrepreneurs just have this goal of uh, let me make money or let me be famous. That's probably a more popular one these days, right? Uh, and I I don't fundamentally have an issue with that. So if somebody wants to go out and make money and that's their only goal, awesome. But It can definitely fuck with nature, it can fuck
0: with um, the health of other people, it can, um, there's a lot of issues with that. All
1: all of those things are true, right? But at least internally, that person is being very self-consistent, right? If they genuinely say, all I wanna do is make money and I don't care what particular startup idea, I can argue with that person that it's generally you will make more money by helping people than like giving people cancer. Mm -hmm. I can do that, but Mm -hmm. fundamentally I, I can't, argue with that person, they have an entirely self-consistent logic. right? But I do have an issue when it's kind of like it's an undefined, nebulous, never-ending goal. Like if the goal is to make money, there's no point at which you succeed. It's always make more money, it's always be more famous. Like there's no vision there, there's There's no goal. It's also true
0: about helping people. You help
1: one person, maybe you want to help 10, maybe you want to help 100. I guess so, but if your goal is to cure Alzheimer's, there is an end state there that you can aspire to. Mm, Interesting, If your goal is to eradicate poverty, there is an end state there. And there's a happy marriage between ending Alzheimer's and
0: making some money along the way to be able to fuel maybe other creative endeavors or fuel your family's
1: success and health. Absolutely. So that you can actually live long enough to keep doing and I would hope Important that if you work. cure Alzheimer's, you are gonna make some money. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, 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 I get irritated with, it. it's, it's the people who try, and do, who try and pretend they're doing one thing when they're actually doing the other that really bother me a lot. Uh, it's, it's when somebody claims to have this aspirational, like I wanna put a, I want to change things for the better, but they're actually just trying to make more money that I think is very disingenuous and totally. I think it's counterproductive to their own efforts. And being sniffed out by the rest of society. Really, yes. and
0: you're not gonna get away with it. What about the overall meaning of creation? What is the purpose of this? For us to all creatively express ourselves, to maximize consciousness, to make the next cycle of creation happen, what is
1: the point of this? <laughs> what is the point of creation? I mean, that's that gets a bit amorphous. I mean, eventually, it, you know, eventually none of it's gonna matter. We're all gonna be, the sun will get it to a certain size and the earth will be gone. Um, Honestly, I I think existence is its own good. Mm -hmm. Like it's better to exist than to not exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a delight in seeing new things. I see a delight in in every new combination and uh, even the painful stuff in my life I have enjoyed in retrospect. I am glad to have experienced something bad than experience nothing at all like the worst times in my life that I look back on are the ones that are just absolutely dull and gray and bland and nothing happened yeah, like that to me is is horrible that's purgatory for me damn yeah um, so so I I always think that the, the the there's no greater reason for it than it is It is creation itself, like the act of creation itself, the existence of the universe is all, um, is in and of itself its own good. Mm -hmm. And combining two random things and getting something that's just a little bit different than either of them together, where where one plus one somehow miraculously equals three is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing and something that we can all strive for. Um, And it is the only way that we're going to eradicate poverty. It is the only way that we're going to fix climate change is by not doing more of the same stuff. Yeah, like that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, so I'm. I don't have any great philosophical reason to it, other than I think that everybody enjoys that. I think it's better for everybody when we try and be more creative and try and apply our talents to to maximize uh, happiness for everybody, maximize value for everyone, rather than just capture some of it for ourselves. Yes. Um, yes. So that that is the creative. That is the creative spark that that I always try and pursue, is just to create more value, not just capture a little bit for myself. Create more value
0: than you capture. Maybe one of the purposes of creation, yeah. What do you think is truth? Um, (laughs)
1: uh, Just epistemologically? uh, Like definitions of truth? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think for the purposes of, of, of my life and my work, I guess there's, there's, uh, there's kind of the big truth and the little truth, right? So there's, there's what happened and then there's um, communicating that in a way that's understandable and usable. So this, this poet, now I'm going to forget his name, I think it was Jerry Costanza or something like that. You know, uh, Tim Daniels told me this quote. He said, the truth is no excuse for a bad poem and I really like that mm-hmm. quote. And he, he's, he brought that up when, when somebody in my poetry class, this is like 20, 24 years ago, something like that. He brought it up when somebody uh, had this really nice poem that just ended really badly and everybody in class kind of had the same comment that it was just a beautiful poem but this, the ending was an absolute flop and his, his, his response was, well, that's what happened. They said, well, the truth is no excuse for a bad poem. There is a certain point at which sometimes in order to convey what you're really trying to convey, the emotion in this case of the poem, uh, you might need to stretch the facts a little. Um, I'm not in general a fan of stretching the facts uh, in general, uh, but sometimes you need to tell a good story to get a point across. It's probably not what I'm doing with this particular story. Um, But, Mm sometimes you need to leave out certain details um sometimes there is an art to uh, successful hyperbole that that better communicates or, or makes the the truth more usable right? that's interesting so in a very stupid example yeah. i always tell people never ever 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 do surveys never they're terrible why right? Because 99.999% of the time, entrepreneurs suck at writing surveys. They're terrible at them. They tend to write really bad questions like, Will you buy this product? How much will you pay for it? Will you pay $20 for that? Those questions are always, the answers to those questions are always lies. Uh, People always answer them very poorly. I've run that survey. I ran personally a survey where I threw 220 people and I said, would you buy this automated system for non-disclosure agreements? 66% of people said yes. Would you pay $20 for that? 63% of people said yes. I put up the landing page, threw 120 some odd people to it, and I had exactly zero people purchase that product. Yeah. I, those surveys are terrible. There is one out of, you know, a thousand entrepreneurs who can actually do surveys. Surveys are perfectly good tools. But if I tell anybody that they're going to go do a survey, they always think they're the point zero 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 one percent who can actually write surveys. So I, I try never to say that
0: uh, we got to true. I like it. you got to surveys from truth because that, <laughs> that's that is, that's funny.
1: Um so sometimes yeah. I have to fib a little to get to the truth.
0: That's that was an interesting point about um which details do you incorporate or leave out in story to um communicate the truth more um efficaciously.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting when you even see movies like Chernobyl. You know it's they did a pretty good job at apparently a lot of details, but some things are clearly made up, right? A lot of the characters are are shoved together. They might have one actor Who's serving multiple roles in the stories because they don't have the budget for the cast, or it just makes it would make a eight hour documentary into a 24 hour documentary. And it's just a choice like, are they conveying the essence of what was important, uh, or are they not? And then, what would you say is love? Ooh, what would I say is love? I always like to think of love as an action, not uh, something that happens to you. It's not like you just, I fell in love and there it was, I was in love. I fell out of love. I think that's stupid. Sorry if I offend anybody. Uh, I think that's utterly ridiculous. I think love is the effort that you put in on a day-to-day basis. So if you Mm. love your job, you better put in the effort on a day-to-day basis. If you love your wife or you love your husband. Uh, you better put in the effort on a day-to-day basis. And, and every time that you are not putting in that effort, you are not in love, you are, you're, not, you're not being loving. Mm, do you love, how much do you love yourself putting in that effort on a day-to-day basis? Sure, yeah. absolutely. Take care um, of your health, sleep well. Take care of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Take a few minutes, take a breath, whatever you need to do. Yeah, um, Yeah, that's a good point.
0: I like that, I like that, that's a position of love. And then what about... Um,
1: it, it's like attention. It's yeah, just yeah. paying attention.
0: Paying attention. What is the relationship between good and evil, and what, how are they at play on the planet?
1: Um, you're probably asking the wrong person on this one because, so like, from my philosophy, good and evil are not uh, are human constructs, right? They're, they're not, human constructs. Yeah. Okay, tell us more. Well, if you didn't, they're not these,
0: creations of God. Well, I mean.
1: War of the oneness or from the unity, the creation? Well, no? whatever it is, of course, they are creations of that because everything is a creation mm-hmm. of whatever that thing you want oh, to talk okay. about is. Okay. So everything is okay. a creation of the thing. Okay. It starts to get very abstract when you talk about okay. it like that. Um, no, I, I mean, it's a human construct. These are human perceptions. If there were no humans on this planet, there would be no good and evil. Right? Um, or at least not on this planet. So
0: good and evil are relative to our experience on this planet.
1: Yeah. Sure. But there there are certainly, I think there are certain maxims like I try and behave uh, via utilitarianism or some form of Kant's categorical imperative. Mm. Um, there are some kind of rules that we can put in place that make us happier and uh more healthy as both individual human beings and as society. Um but I I am more of a fan of judging people on their own self-consistency than anything else. I love that.
0: Yeah. yeah, self-consistency is so critical. Yeah. How, how often do you actually take that breath instead of react to something? How often do you actually eat well or sleep well or exercise or show love to other humans? All these types of things, how consistent are you with that? Yeah, or
1: just do you practice what you preach? What you what preach. You preach right? And yeah. I, I cannot give you a logical argument versus one moral system or, or the other. Um, in fact there's plenty of plenty of literature on why that, that's impossible. If you, if anybody wants to Google Goodle's Goodle's incompleteness theorems, yeah. like go for it. Um, but if somebody's saying that that uh, you know to, to take a really uh, to, to take a very eighties example, right? So if you're an, an evangelical preacher who says that homosexuality is a very bad thing and then you go to a motel and you check in and you have homosexual se- sex. That person I can say is a bad person, right? yeah. <laughs> That is a hypocrite. Um, so, so that I have a very severe problem with, but everything else I can only judge people on there, at least internal logics, self-consistency. Do you think we're in a simulation? Um, it doesn't really matter to me. I mean, if you think everything is the same stuff, Then it does not matter if that, if you want to. It's like, I can only tell the difference between mind and matter if there is mind and matter, okay? Because you're essentially comparing one to the other. So if you think there is only mind and we're all just spiritual beings, you're uttering a nonsensical sentence, right? Because you have to have matter to compare mind to. What's the difference? You're saying there's stuff. There's nothing else to compare it to. So there's just stuff. If you just think everything is physical and there's no such thing as spirituality and there's no such thing as mind and yada, 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 you're still just saying that there's stuff and that stuff interacts. You're basically saying the same thing. So people who are kind of entirely physical objectivists, I forget the term, and people who are like Berkeley and think there's only uh, perception, they're essentially just saying the same thing. They're using different words for the stuff. So if you want to say that everything is a simulation, okay, sure. A simulation of what? It's a simulation of itself. Mm. Like until Mm. the point where somebody shuts off the computer and we wake up like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix and we say, oh, wait a minute, there's this whole other other realm of existence, Mm. then it doesn't make any difference. If we're all existing as a computer simulation and it's kind of a closed box and we can't interact with that other plane, then it makes absolutely no difference to my life. Sometimes it feels like
0: everything is source, and other times it feels like there are things outside of source. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing. Last question. Shoot. What is the most beautiful thing in the world?
1: Ooh. That's a very good question. Uh, I mean, my mind is going immediately to whale sharks, because I just love whale sharks, and I just went scuba diving. Um, but if I wasn't just picking a, a thing, I would just say um, patience. Mm. I'm going to go with patience. Mm. Why? Why patience? I think if you're patient enough, um, all of the beautiful things come from patience. Right? If you don't have any patience, you are never going to have the patience to sit and wait for the whale shark to come by and swim by. You're never going to have the patience to stick through the hard churn of entrepreneurship and build something amazing. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the patience, you're never going to get through that first argument with your, uh, with your partner and uh, really achieve mutual understanding and support that builds a great relationship. But I mean, if you don't have that patience, like, what are you really going to get? Um, even the five year old has to be a little bit patient for dessert and suffer through the asparagus uh, in order to get there. Uh. So, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with patience because it's necessary for everything else and it has its own reward. What was yours?
0: I love that answer. That was such a good one. You gave so many great examples of patience being super important. And especially in the instant gratification economy we live in right now to have patience and to know that, um, to, to, to bring your gifts forth through all of the tests of faith, through all of the challenges, earn accolades and experience points along the way and be in love with that journey and not the end result that that is going to have so much more actualization for you tristan this has been so much fun i've had a it's he- been very cool i've had a blast talking to you thank you very much for coming on no thank
1: you for having me and uh, huge uh, thank you even if we don't get to it now you're gonna to have to tell me what your most beautiful thing was after this The
0: beautiful thing is probably source source no, okay. source yeah probably source yeah the fact that there is this experience is just yeah, so gorgeous it's
1: pretty fascinating yeah
0: yeah it's so fascinating and hopefully we'll understand the ultimate nature of it soon better thank you thank you for coming on thank you for having me thanks everyone for tuning in we greatly appreciate it we'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode let us know what you're thinking have more conversations with your friends your families coworkers, people online about innovation ecosystems and about startups and about bringing our maximal creativity forth and how to do that best through the processes that Tristan was teaching us throughout the episode also check out the links in the bio below to chromatic.com also Tristan's blog LinkedIn profile and Twitter profile check those out support the artists the entrepreneurs the spiritual leaders The organizations around the world that you believe in, support them, help them grow. Our links to simulation are below to our Patreon, our cryptocurrency, our PayPal link. Also, you can design cool merch and get paid. All those links are below. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you soon. Peace.